for oh, a couple months now, is the things that Jesus does in his ministry. Uh, and and not, not trying to focus on the things he says. Obviously, we, we've, we've stated uh, a number of times that the things that Jesus stated are really what is vital to changing uh, our lives. He is the Word. Uh, that's his title. Uh, but, but that Jesus did so many things uh, around what he said that, that gave uh, his, his words a stronger impact. And so we don't want to minimize his message, but, but so much of um, his, his other, the behaviors that, that he made a part of his life were what gave value to the words. And that's true, I think, with any of us. And there's the old phrase that, you know, uh, I, I can't hear you, your actions are speaking too loudly. And we've heard that phrase. And I want to kind of give a, a name to what we've been discussing, because uh, it could be said that, that we've been talking about the difference between Christ's behavior and his communication, but that would not be accurate. Um, really, what we've been addressing is a different kind of communication. It's all communication. Uh, the things we have mentioned uh, illustrate that Jesus was not just aware of his verbal communication but his nonverbal communication as well. How are people perceiving me through my actions? What, what, what are they getting from me beyond what, what I've just said? Uh, there's a verse that speaks to uh, nonverbal communication. Maybe you didn't ever think of this verse like this. Uh, but in 1 Peter... And, and here in 1 Peter chapter 3, he's specifically addressing wives, but it's a principle really that applies universally. And he says, Wives, submit uh, to your husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct, which is accompanied by your fear. And, and so, so Peter here addresses the idea of the importance of nonverbal communication in this specific case in a marriage in a, in a, and even more specifically a marriage where a woman has become a Christian but her husband's a little a little late to the game uh, and 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 he, you know he's going to think about this and he's going to not make any quick decisions and, and she's going to just kind of plot along and do without nagging him you need to get to church right? and, and so without all that she's going to end up getting him there. She's going to end up converting him through the, the stuff that's, you know, he's obviously going to hear her talking with friends or doing whatever. It's, it, her speech is going to change because God changes who we are, but he's going to see the changes around the home, the nonverbal things, and that is going to give weight to anything he hears. And Jesus does a number of things uh, and what we're talking to, I said we were going to give a name to it, but it has to do with what we project to people. Jesus is always aware of what he projects, and because of this, there's so many different areas. This is kind of not going to be... Some of our sermons have all been kind of within a tight uh, window, all of the, the, the references we've had. These are going to be a little bit more broad. 
that there's going to be kind of a potpourri because there's so many different types of things and we could go on and on and on about the different things that Jesus projects as a part of his ministry. But I want to look at three that, that are important for us to have as representatives of Christ, things that Christ himself did. So I'm going to start in John chapter 6. Let's see, I say John 6 and you already know where I'm going. You already probably have kind of an idea of of what we're discussing. Um, we know this as the, the, the famous uh, Lord's Supper meditation text. Right? It's, it's one of the few that we, we turn to frequently. But, but uh, we're going to be looking at a different element here. John chapter 6. And we're getting into before the, the, the sermon that we, we like to concentrate on. But John chapter 6, we begin in verse 5. And he says... Um, Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming towards him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to them, to test, they, uh, to test him, for he knew what he was going to do. Philip said to him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not enough for them. Every one of them would still only have a little. So apparently Philip was the mathematician here. And, and one of his disciples, Andrew Simon, Peter's brother, said to him, there's a, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. So, so Andrew Simon's not the brightest in the, the bunch. He's a little slow to the game. Uh, and he says, uh, what are they among so many? And Jesus said to him, well, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so everyone sat down. And the number of men was about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves and he said, when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. And then those men, when they had seen the signs that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who came into the world. And we, we could draw our attention to a lot of things here, couldn't we? And we typically do. A lot of really good things in here. As we said, we, we, we often draw our attention to this really difficult doctrinal sermon that follows on the, on the, the bread of life. We can uh, draw our attention to the size of the crowd, that makes this so amazing of a miracle. And the fact that, that this is one of two. If we go back to Matthew, right, Matthew 14 and 15, that this has happened twice in a row. Uh, this is, I believe, the first of the two. Um, and John, so John just relates this one. The faith of the boy. There's a lot of amazing things in this, in this text. But I want to draw our minds to one often overlooked, very non-miraculous aspect of Jesus' ministry by noticing one detail. Where did they get 12 baskets? What are 12 baskets? Were those the apostles? The apostles brought a basket? I don't know. Because in the other one, there was only seven. Uh, so, so, so there was only seven baskets. So I don't know if that's significant of being the apostles' baskets, or, or if Jesus says, 
hey guys, why don't you just bring some baskets? Why do we need baskets? Just bring them. I don't know what's going on. But there's 12 baskets that just have baskets. Jesus must be doing an object lesson later on. I don't know. Well, he did, that's for sure. But Jesus demonstrates several things that are important, too. We're going to look at two things that he demonstrates that I think are important for us to have as a part of our ministry, beyond all the miracles and all the amazing things that Jesus does. He first demonstrates stewardship. Now, he has demonstrated that he can make food out of nothing. That, that was the first temptation. Hey, Jesus, you're hungry. Make some food. Hey, no, I couldn't do it. And Jesus has the ability to make food out of nothing. Or out of very little. Out of nothing if he wanted. Out of rocks if he wanted. Yet, at the same time, having done that, he doesn't say, listen, I've got an endless supply of food right here at my fingertips. He has his apostles gather up the fragments so that none is lost. Like that phrase, none is lost. I, though I can do this, am still teaching you stewardship. Because, hey, the, the, the day is coming when people aren't going to be able, wouldn't you like, right, that would, that would really dramatically lower my grocery bill. Right? We all think about that. Oh, man, what this used to cost me when I go through the checkout line. That would be really nice. We could really work on inflation. There's a bunch of food. That would be nice. Well, the day has come when, when, when this ability is, is not around. We better have some stewardship. We better know how to, how to handle the things that, that we have and, and that we've been blessed with. And so, Jesus uses it. I, I think probably, I don't know this to be true, but I, I believe they probably didn't just like keep 12 baskets of food for themselves. And Jesus famously ministered to the poor. And I imagine that this was an aspect of this. I don't know that to be true. But, but Jesus certainly shows that trend. They, they, they kept a basket of money for the poor. So, stewardship is an important thing to project to people. Showing that, that we have that trademark of Christ. The second thing it shows is responsibility, which is closely related to stewardship. But I want you to think about what damage 5,000 people can do to a hillside. It was, I forget what Earth Day it was. There was an Earth Day thing in, in Washington, D.C. and uh, They left, and the, the, the mall... <laughs> I'm, getting, I'm seeing the smiles there. The, the, the mall in Washington, D.C. was completely trashed. Completely trashed. It was ironic that, that it wasn't too long later that the um, uh, promise keepers came in uh, and they had a huge rally. They actually had more people than the, I think it was the, the Million Man March. And they actually had more people 
Um, Million Man March didn't quite live up to its, its billing. But here's all these men. Right? Promise Keepers is a, is a, a male, Christian, covenant-keeping group, and they left it spotless. There was almost no pickup needed. And the contrast of people who worship the earth and people who worship Christ was noticeable. That's the, the trademark that we should have on a society. People should notice that we are responsible. What happens to Jesus' ministry if he leaves this town in Galilee and it is completely wasted? Well, his ministry in that town is completely wasted. Right? So, so it's a little thing that, that, that we read the scripture and we never really grasp this idea, these little things that Jesus does. Pick up, pick up the fragments. Let's be responsible. People are waiting to see if our behavior matches our words. And if Jesus hadn't demonstrated these things, the entire awesome sermon that he is going to say after this is going to be on deaf ears when he leaves. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, we're going to look at another thing that he projects. Verse 46, beginning... He says, while he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brother standing outside, seeking to speak with them. And one said to him, look, your mother and your brother standing outside, looking to speak with you. And he answered to the one who said, who's, uh, to, who said this, and he said, who is my mother and my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, here is my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother or my sister or my mother. We can get lost in a lot of details here. Or we can get into discussions and doctrinal discussions about Jesus' family or um, the role of Mary in his ministry. It is a, a discussion that we can, we can look at some details here and we can talk about doctrine as it relates to faith and works is, is a part of this discussion if we wanted to get into that. So while Jesus is certainly teaching a lot of things here, as we, we, we go back through the, the lessons that he's been talking about, right? a tree is known by its fruit, and all these various things that he's been identifying, he takes a pause to teach another lesson. A lesson that he really does without words. What would have been perceived if Jesus would have jumped up and run outside? A lot of things would have been perceived that would have not been what Jesus would have wanted. Well, perhaps there would have been an incorrect conclusion drawn about the importance of Jesus' family. That, that they would have been elevated above his ministry, which was you know, something he Stated was very important to him, but, but a different message would have been communicated. Oh, his family here. I've got to interrupt my sermon. 
Maybe people would lose interest in a 30-year-old man who had this need to go see what mommy wanted. I don't know. I want to look at the important lesson, the most important thing that he's communicating by not getting up. And he is projecting value. Value of the people who are sitting there. Now he states it, but the fact that he does more than state it, he just sits there. I don't care. They'll wait. Not that important. The fact that he does not get up is something visible to them. And, and it's something, I'll, I'll, I want to illustrate this uh, in just a second, but whatever Jesus does at this moment is going to affect everybody listening. So he's going to communicate two types of value. First of all, his family would be more important than the message if he gets up. That would be one thing that he's projecting, one value. But he would also be projecting that his family is more important than them. They came to listen to him. He sat down and started talking to them. But now, wait a minute. I've got to go do this thing. This is more important. What do we project? Um, Now, how I do this will be different than the way Jesus did it. I will likely never be in this circumstance. However, we, we do have a way to adapt these concepts. I'll give you a personal, something that does affect me. I am uh, famous, uh, you know, Paul was famous for, in Romans he says, Uh, you know, I have these two natures that war within me. I have two natures that war within me. Um, I like to chit-chat. My family, ask my family on Sunday afternoon if I like to chit-chat. They, they, that is much to their chagrin, I like to chit-chat. Sorry. I am my mother's son. However, I have another nature within me, and that is that I am a task-oriented person. I, I think of a list of things that I need to get done. And one of these natures is stronger in me than the other one. And the task-oriented Andrew typically wins this battle. So, so here's how this manifests itself. We're in a conversation where I'm chit-chatting, and at some point, I have a, a bell going off that's telling me I need to go do something, and I do this. And so, so, so I, I'm talking, and I do this. I'm still engaged. I'm still chit, chit-chatting, but I'm sending you a message. I'm out the door. I'm really trying to get away from you, right? That is a non-verbal communication, and it's loud and it's clear. It's like, you're not really here. Yeah, I see the eye contact, but uh, there's not really much else here. You're not here. You're in your task, and, and I, I if you, now, now I've told you this, uh, you're going to be like on the lookout for it, so, so I've, I've done some damage to this, uh, to myself here, but I regularly have to say, square your shoulders, Andrew, 
and engage, engage. Because I know how it's perceived. It's funny, but it's not funny, right? I can send the message to people that they're not really that important. What you're saying, I, I, yes, okay, I'm nodding my head, I'm saying yes, 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 in the right, you know, at the right time to have that response. But I'm not here. I'm elsewhere, doing a task. So it's important what we project. That, that's just one of many different types of things that we can, I, I don't want to, okay, so Andrew's sermon was that we should look at the people. That's not what I'm trying to get. If, you, if that's your nature, then yes, that's the application for you. The point is that we need to engage people and project value in whichever way that you need to do that. In, in, in your world, whatever that looks like, you need to project that people are valuable. Otherwise, the words that come out of your mouth are lost on them. Like Christ, there are a lot of things we can project. By this choice, or by this action, what will people assume is important? What value will I be communicating? Well, in this case, this is important to me. I, I know I say the church is important. I know I say this is important. But this is more important. Is that being communicated by the decisions and the priorities that we have? The last one is in Matthew uh, chapter 9. Verse 23. This is a shorter one. Now, a few weeks ago... We interrupted a miracle of Jesus so that he could perform another miracle. I don't know if you remember that. Right? And Jesus was on his way to heal somebody and he stopped and, uh, and, and, and here was this other miracle. This lady came up to him and touched him and, 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 and we stopped right there. Well, we're going back to finish the story. Yeah? It's like Paul Harvey, the rest of the story here. So, so, it, so we're, with that backdrop, let's, let's turn to, uh, to verse 23. It says that, Jesus came to the ruler's house and he saw the flute players and the noisy crowd. They were wailing and he said to them, Make room for the girl is not dead, she's sleeping. And they ridiculed him. And when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand. The girl arose and the report of this went out to all the land. And that's the end of the miracle. And we were so amazed at the miracle. Dead, I mean, a dead person coming back to life. I don't care how many times we read this in the Bible. It's amazing every time. And we have a lot of things that we can look at. I want to look at some of the details. They're laughing at Jesus. No. He says, she's just sleeping. At this point of his ministry, you shouldn't be arguing about Jesus when he talks about the state of people. They're sleeping. Now, people... We, I want to give the people here some leeway. Because in grief, people are not always in control of their emotions. And I don't know if you remember a few years ago, uh, there was a, when the Sandy Hook shooting happened. I don't know 
know, there was a lot of conspiracy theories that were floated. One of them was that this was, this was a, a, what do they call it, a, a false flag event. And one of the reasons that they cited for this not being a real event was that one of the mothers of, of children who had, who had been killed, or she had two children, one had been killed in the event, she was at a press conference and she laughed. So they said, well, she's not really serious, so, so she's laughing. Let's, let's open the Bible and let's see the parents and the family of a, of a, of a little girl who's dead laughing. Right? People are not always in control of their emotions in these moments. So, so I want to give the parents and the family of this, of this girl some leeway. Now, and additionally, there was a loud commotion. And there's, there's musical instruments, and this is a part of their grieving process. Now, when we lived in Ukraine, uh, their, their grieving process is a little bit different. Um, when you die, um, your coffin, after they do, do all that, is placed outside of your house, standing up in front of the doorway. Uh, that's odd. You're just walking down the street, and there's, then there's a group of people, and, and all day... The casket will be there, and, and people do their visitation there. They don't have, like, funeral parlors and things like that. Then the priest comes from the Orthodox. Everybody there is Orthodox, just about. Uh, so the Orthodox priest comes, and, and he brings with him a group of old ladies. Now, the group of old ladies doesn't know this person. Their job is to cry and wail as loud as they can. It's, a, it's like an honor that we are grieving over your person. And they consider this an honor. Okay? That's, that's their culture. I'm not diminishing their culture. That's their culture. And they understand that as a term of respect. The church is officially grieving over your loved one. But it's a loud racket. It's a little unnerving being in that community when you're not from it. They see nothing strange about it. So Jesus walks into a similar situation. I don't know if they were paid mourners, but I, I believe the culture had official mourners. And, and they're, they're making a loud racket with musical instruments and all sorts of things. And what is Jesus' response? He shushes them, gets them out of the room. Why? Does, does Jesus have the inability to perform this miracle with noise? Like, I can't concentrate. I can't hear the spirits. You know, That's not Jesus. Jesus can handle noise. We're talking about the person who hears the prayers of you know, billions of people. Simultaneously. I think he can handle noise. But he's projecting something. Projecting a couple things. A sense of control, not bad control. But if you want to think of it as a sense of order, maybe would be a, a way to, to say this. Jesus can handle the situation. I'm in control. 
And, and when people are in the midst of calamity, they need a sense that this is going to be all right. They're not in control of their emotions. They're not in control of their reactions. And they need someone to step in and just calm it down. What does Christ project? Christ doesn't react to their craziness. Christ doesn't react to the to their disrespect of Jesus. Right? He just steps in. Got it under control. And I think that's important to, to project that. I say if you if you prefer the word order rather than control, that's fine. Right now. We, we read this all going on within the span of a sentence, but I, I assume this took longer. And I, and I assume there's just a lot of hyper-emotion happening. What is he projecting? What do we project? Now, unlike Jesus, I am not always in perfect control of the situation. Sometimes I don't know how to react to a situation. Right? I'm not Jesus. Jesus had that perfect, I just know how to deal with this. I don't always know the answers. But I do know this. If I project to people that I am just as out of my element as they are, I'm not going to make the situation any better. Sometimes, it's not really deceitful, but sometimes you kind of have to act like you know what you're doing when you don't. Sometimes you just kind of have to walk into the situation and we're going to get to the end of this. I don't know how. I just know that we are. I know that there's a, an end to this that is positive. And, and, and people need to be in whatever situation. It doesn't have to, we don't have to be talking about a, a death situation. It can be an accident. It can, But whatever major thing. It doesn't even have to be something physical. It can be something emotional. Something spiritual where people are out of control. I need to project order. I need to project control of a situation. Not because I, the great Andrew Green, have control of this situation. But I do know the one who does. And people need to know that there is Someone, somewhere who can control this situation, who can make this eventually a situation that we come out of the other side with. I do not always feel up to the task. It is fortunate that people do not need me to be up to the task. They need God to be up to the task. He does not let you down. And so I project what I do not have. I project what God has because I am a reflection of God. And I am merely, and we are merely, the channel through which God can get to people and give them what He has. That is important for us to know. So when I walk into a situation, it's going to be all right. That's not a throwaway phrase. 
It's a very true phrase. It's very important. We're preparing to wrap up this uh, series in this first half of the year uh, next week. Uh, we've been talking about our visible ministry, our visible faith to people. There's one more lesson uh, to take away from this. We could have dozens and dozens. We're going to be turning to our spiritual, what, what the inner faith is like. But um, in a diversity of ways, as we talk about our visible faith, there is a, a diversity of ways that we can undo what we are attempting to accomplish in the world. If we are not cautious about the silent messages that we are sending to people, if we project a, 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 a God who is not in control of things, and, and doesn't have answers for them, they're gone. If we project a, a God who is not concerned about how he uses things, is not a God of stewardship and a, a God of self-control, we lose the vitality of the message that we are trying to, to give to people. As I say, the, the topics we cover are so wide-ranging. There's so many more things that we could just, one after the other after the other, we could, we could see the things that Jesus did just quietly that confirmed what he was, <coughs> what he was preaching. But from stewardship to, to value, simply the value of people that we, we communicate to them through the, through the responses, not just the vocal responses, but, but through the way we interact as humans, there's a lot of pitfalls. There's a lot of things to take into account. And everything goes back to one idea that we've spoken of. And I've said this before, and, um, it, it's an obvious thing, I think. And that is that we need to be deliberate. We say these things, and you're like, oh my goodness, i got to think about this, and i got to think about my shoulders, and i got to think about this, and there's just too many things to think about. <coughs> yeah, there are. Yes, there are. And we don't do it perfectly. But, but we, will, we will do a very bad job of it if we are not deliberate in our faith, if we're just reaction, uh, reactionary in, in the way we respond to people, in, in the way we communicate and interact with people. If it's just all by accident, we will, we will do a very bad job. Jesus was very deliberate. And, and in the moment... What does this person need? What do they need me to be? What do they need from God? I need to project that to them. Okay. Hand it over. Let's stand and sing.